Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Our Father, we confess um, that these verses scare us and make us feel uncomfortable because naturally we're cowards and we don't want to be persecuted. We confess to you that we like an easy life. And so we need you to help us this morning as we try and understand what these verses mean. Would you soften our hearts, please? Would, would they be fertile? Would you yield a crop in us, among us, and through us? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, perhaps it shouldn't be, but, uh, but one of the most surprising threads, at least for me, that I hear in our, our modern society, our modern culture, is that all religion is dangerous. It's not just neutral, it's not just tolerable, it's not just fine, but keep it to yourself, please. It's that all religion is dangerous. It must be eradicated. It is bad for you, the argument goes. I wouldn't recommend it, but if, if you ever dare to read some of the letters in the newspapers or to search on Twitter for this kind of thing or to, to scroll down into the comments section on the internet, which you should always avoid, you will see hatred pouring forth. It's extraordinary. We spoke about it earlier in the year. Um, you can track some of the trajectory of Europe, of the West, a confused culture, a confused society, because we've done away with God. We've walked out on God, and then we don't really know why people matter, for example. What does it mean to be a person? Now, if you're a historian, you know this is not a new thing. Um, the socialist Karl Marx famously said this. He said, man makes religion. Religion does not make man. It is the opiate of the people. And then he said this. The people cannot be really happy until it has been deprived of illusory happiness by the abolition of religion. So religion, man-made, but it's dangerous. It must be wiped out. People will never truly be happy until it is done away with, until it is thrown away. He greatly influenced a, a famous man called Vladimir Lenin, probably Marx's most influential follower. Lenin said, everyone must be an atheist. We will never achieve our goal until the myth of God has been removed from the thoughts of man. I don't know how you feel when you hear ideas like that, quotations like that. There's something in me that just doesn't quite get it. We've, we've been working our way through the Beatitudes this summer. We've seen this picture that Jesus has painted of one of his followers and I think it's been beautiful. The kind of person I long to be, the kind of person I long for you to be, and then we can be friends together. Now, of course, Marx and Lenin and the modern-day religion haters who speak of their desire to eradicate religion, they were not simply just talking about Jesus' followers, but they would certainly have been counted among them. 
And of course, Christians down the years and Christians in our day do get it very, very wrong. And so we understand something of where this hatred might come from. But as I read the kind of person that Jesus has been describing for us these past few weeks, why would they want to get rid of that? Why would they want to eradicate that kind of a person? Do you remember the story so far in these studies? Or if you're just here as a, as a visitor or a guest or you've not been around for the last few weeks, let me try and give you a bit of a catch-up to see where we've got to. What we've seen is that Jesus the King has arrived He's the one they've been waiting for. He is the one they've been longing for. The one who will come and put the world right again. And he's here. And our ears are pricked up. We're listening for what he's going to say. We're waiting for his world-changing manifesto. How's he going to do it? Jesus, what's the plan? Is it military might? Is it political programs? What are you going to do? And it all comes a bit left field because... It's not so much what he's going to do, but what his people are going to look like. Or better still, not so much what they're going to look like, but what they're really like inside. He cares little for outward appearance. If you were here a couple of weeks ago with Pete Bentley-Taylor, he described it very well, that we live in an age of, of image over word, where style is more important than substance. How things look matter more than what they're really like in our culture. And I say Jesus' teaching is very, very countercultural, because he says what's inside that matters. We can all wear the mask, we can all put on the act, but what you're really like is most important. And it's countercultural too, because he describes how we're going to be blessed. That is, how we'll be favoured by God, how to live a life as it was meant to be lived. And each week as we've gone through, we've zoomed in on a different beatitude each time, a different aspect of Jesus' teaching on his people. It's been as, as if it's a string of pearls. One joined to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. So we started off with poor in heart. Do you remember in verse 3? Poor in spirit. Where we said as the starter, the foundational thing is we are not fun fundamentally good. We are morally bankrupt. We, we can't get ourselves out of this debt to God. We are helpless. We need his help. And where you begin with this, this poverty of spirit, this, this understanding of what we're like before God, so that moves on through to those who mourn. We mourn the brokenness of the world. We mourn our own personal brokenness, our, our sin. We're a people, as we just have done, who confess before the Lord. The people who look in the paper and, and weep the news. We're people who look in our hearts and weep what we're like as we see our sin. They pour in spirits to mourn to then meekness. We treat other people well because we know our sin. We know our own standing before God. We know his kindness to us. And so we have a meek attitude, a meek outlook on life. We're not selfish grabbers, as someone put it in our home group. We're not there just grabbing things for ourselves, but we look to the Lord and we treat people accordingly. And so we hunger and thirst for righteousness. We long for justice, for holiness in the world and in us. And so we're merciful. We've been shown mercy. And so we show mercy to others. Do you struggle to show mercy to others? Well, maybe we need to know how much the Lord has shown mercy to us. And so we're pure in heart. 
it's that inner moral purity, but as well as that, the undivided devotion towards the Lord, a heart that is focused on him, which of course again throws us upon him, the one who changes hearts, because we know the reality of not having undivided devotion. And then peacemakers. We enjoy peace with the Lord and so peace with one another. And we long to spread that. And that, Jesus says, is how to be blessed. Two people are, what we're like inside. And if he drew stumps there at verse 9, I'd be much happier. If there was a feedback form to Jesus, I think that would be the top of the list. But then there's verse 10. And he doesn't hide the small print. He's very honest and open about what we ought to expect if we're the kind of people he's just described. It comes as something of a surprise in the text. Maybe not so much in our experience and our expectation as we look at the world. But verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And maybe we've thought it each, each week. But we're slightly left thinking, really, Jesus? Really, persecution leads to blessing? That's how to live the blessed life? Are you sure? Do you want to have another go? What's going on? Why does verse 10 come after verse 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, and 3? Before we jump in, let me just point out a couple of slightly technical things, which I think are important uh, from the, the verses, from verse 10, 11, and 12, but particularly 10. And the first thing to say is this is slightly a different one in verse 10. It is less about a characteristic of the people of God and more about the world's response to the characteristics of the people of God. So you see, all the others are describing somebody who is poor in spirit, mourn, meek, that kind of thing. Now it's how people will respond, I think, to somebody who is like that. Okay, so it's not so much the person, but the world's response to the person. The other thing to say, which is slightly technical, but I think will help us understand something of the confusion that would have been felt the first time this was said, is that as you read this verse, rather like a sort of modern prosperity gospel, there would have been something of a karma equation in the minds of the people of this time. It was a sort of works religion that said, keep your gods happy and you'll get the goodies back. Do the right stuff and you'll be blessed. And so the opposite as well. If you don't keep your God or gods happy, then things won't go so well for you. A couple of examples from Scripture just to back that up. Um, start of Acts 28, Paul arrives, if you remember, in Malta. Let me read it to you. Acts 28 and verse 1. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood and... As he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live. See what's going on? See what they think? They think because Paul's been bitten by this snake, then the Greek goddess, I think probably 
I think it's pronounced Dikey, hunted him because they assume he's a murderer, therefore. He's done bad, so bad things happen to him. Our culture would call it karma. Or another one famously in John 9 with Jesus, where Jesus comes upon a, a, a man born blind, uh, and his disciples asked him, John 9, this is verse 2, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They answered, well, neither. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. So do you see their worldview? Their, their thinking is, if you do good stuff, then good stuff happens. If you do bad stuff, then bad stuff will follow you. And I take it that would have been in the minds of the, the initial hearers here, the listeners. You've got the disciples, and then I think you get the crowds edging in closer and closer, because by the end of the sermon, you find that they're listening in as well. And their initial knee-jerk reaction would be, well, because bad things have happened, so bad things will come. But Jesus says, no, 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 persecution comes because of good things that you've done, because of faithfulness. I'm afraid that's always been the reality. If you look down church history, a historian named Kenneth Scott Latourette puts it that no other of the face of mankind, religious or political, has quite so extensive a record of violent and bitter opposition to its growth. You can track it from day one at the beginning to the present day even, maybe even to your life, maybe to situations or relationships in your workplace or your family or your neighbourhood or your sports team, whatever it might be. Jesus says it's always been the case, and so verse 12 ends. Verse 12, in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Stephen says something similar in Acts 7, as he's martyred in verse 52. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? It's a, it's a pretty incendiary comment from Stephen, but it's true. As you slow down and you analyze the reality of what happens to the prophets, the people whom the Lord used his mouthpieces, it's, it's extraordinary. It almost seems to be a part of the job description. Let me uh, quote to you from one writer who puts it like this. Moses was constantly harassed by grumbling and unbelieving elements among the Israelites. Samuel knew what it was to be rejected. David's life was frequently in danger. Elijah was hounded by Jezebel who threatened to kill him. Nehemiah had running feuds with Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites and the men of Ashdod. God encouraged Ezekiel not to be afraid, though briars and thorns are all around you and you live among scorpions. Jeremiah was beaten, put into stocks, thrown into a cistern of mud, threatened with execution and eventually martyred. The prophets did not get it easy. Why is there a war against the prophets? Why is there this persecution for the people of God? Why? Because I take it of our natural war against God. Because naturally we want to be God. From the very start, we want to write the rules. We want to decide right from wrong. We want to do things our way. We want to be in charge. We don't want to be shackled and have to submit to him. We don't want to be told how to live. We don't want him to, to ruin our freedom and our ideas. We don't want to listen to him. And so we put our hands over our ears and we shut the noise up. Which meant in those days, persecution for the prophets. 
which means in our days it's a belittling and sidelining of God's word in the media, academia. It means attacks against God's people, perhaps particularly against those who speak. It's it's the wanting to silence Jesus as an irrelevant historical figure who maybe had some nice ideas on some things, but then there was some weird stuff too that we kind of ignore, we want to do away with. Maybe in our own lives, it's the sidelining of the Bible. If we don't pick it up, if we don't read it, then God can't speak and we can just carry on as we are, not have to listen. We shut our ears. Or maybe around the world, it's death. More Christian martyrs in the 20th century than in in, in any other. In fact, in all the others combined. John Stott was a a minister in London, a writer, prolific writer. He writes a brilliant commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. He's very pithy. And he says this. He says, persecution is simply the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. The clash between two irreconcilable value systems. Perhaps that's where you feel the tension in your life. Maybe it's the reality that you're just a bit different from those you rub shoulders with. You don't dance the same tune as everybody else. You, you live for different things and you just feel the awkwardness. Perhaps you're just made to feel a bit weird. It's like sandpaper. It's the sandpaper of when the world runs into true Christianity. There is always guilt and conflict and resentment. People just begin to be slightly unkind. Names are perhaps called. Someone put it very starkly in saying, the wicked hate the holy image of God and those who bear it. His holy truth and those who profess and preach it. His holy law and those who stand up for its obligations and authority. His holy ordinances and those who attend them. Or as we've already quoted Marx, the people can't be really happy until it's been deprived of the illusory happiness, of the abolition of religion. But it's worth being slightly more nuanced as we look at these verses and we consider this persecution. It's worth just saying as we pray for Holiday Club next week, it'd be good to pray for, for protection but also for perseverance through that. There might well be fallout and backlash. It wouldn't be the first time at Magdalen Road or even the second time at Magdalen Road that we've come up against criticism because of what we teach. I think there are three qualifications as we look at these verses for the kind of persecution that we ought to expect. See, the thing is, you can be persecuted for being awkward and annoying. And you can be persecuted for being foolish and frustrating. But I think Jesus couches it slightly and talks about three different qualifications. Let me read 10 to 12 again. And then we'll look at those three qualifications. So verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the first one is persecuted because of righteousness there in verse 10. (coughs) The people can be persecuted for bad reasons. Christians can be persecuted for bad reasons. Peter will write later to the churches um, who are facing intense pressure 
and hard times. And he will say something similar. In fact, I wonder whether Peter had these verses particularly in mind as he writes 1 Peter. Maybe go and read 1 Peter this week, see if you agree with me. But in, in 1 Peter 4 and verse 1, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. Jesus isn't talking about suffering for being a chump or suffering for being a lawbreaker or a criminal, but he is suffering for righteousness. And I take it by righteousness here, we mean God's standards of truth and of justice and of purity. And by keeping God's standards of truth and justice and purity, so the behavior of God's people will contrast with others. And what does that mean? Let me try and give you an an entirely um, hypothetical situation from a, a random family environment. Imagine, imagine it's 5.55 p.m. and dinner is about to be served. The house is full of the beautiful smell of cooking. Um, everyone's getting hungry. And imagine you've got child number one um, sitting reading a book on the sofa, kind of in the kitchen, but still reading their book. Trouble is, though, one of the parents has asked the children, broadly, um, to lay the table for dinner. Child number one reads the book. Child number two waltzes down into the kitchen and happily and cheerfully begins to lay the table, as requested. Child number one glances up from the book. Child number one opens their ears to hear the praise that child number two is receiving and immediately begins to feel resentful, guilty, jealous, which means at the dinner table, peas are flicked at child number two from child number one. Entirely hypothetical. (laughs) But do you see what's happened? Because of the kindness, because of the generosity of child number two, so child number one's selfishness and sin is highlighted. Because child number two has been good, if you like, so child number one sees something of their own sin in their own hearts. And so maybe it's the person in the office who's not willing to lie for the boss, who's not willing to fiddle expenses like everyone else, or who's not willing to fudge the exam results to keep Ofsted happy. And everyone else resents them for it because it highlights their own sin and wrongdoing. So the first qualification is because of righteousness. The second one is that people will falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Again, 1 Peter 4 is really helpful here, verses 3 to 4. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. Do you see Christians who don't do what they used to do? They used to join their mates at the parties, but now they don't. And so now their mates are giving them stick. They're giving them verbal abuse because they won't join in anymore. Look who's got religion now, they say. And the personal accusations that follow. You're a fanatic. You believe in a big sky fairy. You can't cope with the real world, and so you need a crutch to help you through. You've lost your mind, and worse and worse. Again, maybe in the situation that Peter was writing to, 
false accusations that resulted in death for the people of God. The Roman historian Tacitus wrote this. It was about AD 64. And he says this, he says, Nero, to stop the rumor that he had set Rome on fire himself, the emperor Nero, falsely charged with guilt and punished with the most fearful tortures, the persons commonly called Christians. Nero protects himself by accusing others. And they are persecuted for it. Well, have a look today at the Barnabas Fund website, for example, and read of brothers and sisters around the world who are falsely accused and persecuted because they're faithful to Christ. One example for you from India a couple of months ago, uh, and I quote, three Christians were severely beaten by a mob of 50 to 60 men led by a group of Hindu extremists on Sunday the 19th of June in the Indian state of Madhya Pradesh. Following the attack, the three victims were forcibly taken to the local police station, beaten along the way, and a case registered against them for attempts to forcibly convert Hindus to Christianity. Utterly false charges. So the second one is falsely say all kinds of evil against you. The third one is because of me. Again, 1 Peter 4 has a parallel. Verse 14, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. But Jesus says, if you are persecuted because of me. Is he just very arrogant in saying that? Don't miss what he's saying. He's saying the Old Testament prophets were persecuted because of their commitment to God. You will be persecuted because of your commitment to Christ. He's putting himself on a par with the living God, with the Lord, with Yahweh. Unless he is who he says he is, unless he is divine, unless he is God. And here we take comfort from the fact that the people of the king will be persecuted because the king himself was persecuted. As with each of these beatitudes, Jesus is the one who goes before us. He perfectly shows us what it means to live each aspect that he's described. He is the perfectly poor in spirit. He is the one who mourns. He is the meek. He is the one who perfectly hungers and thirsts for righteousness. And so on and so on and so on. And he was the one who was persecuted. You see it in his birth. To stay alive, he, 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 ru- he runs, his family runs to Egypt. They're refugees because Herod is seeking to kill them. You see it in his life. Think of the constant opposition from the Pharisees who wanted to kill him because of righteousness, who who falsely said all kinds of things against him. He spent three years trying to trap him and eventually see it in his death. Death as they got what they wanted. They snuff out not just the prophet of God, but the son of God. As we read verses 10 to 12, we are simply treading the footprints of our king. And there's, there's an inevitability about it in verse 11. Again, I would have preferred it if he had said, Blessed are you if people insult you, persecute you, 
and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. But he doesn't say, he says, blessed are you when? It's coming. It's here. Elsewhere, Jesus will say, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you don't belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. John 15. He finishes on a bit of a low, doesn't he? As we do finish, though, I want you to note with me what God does through that persecution. And to do that, we're just going to take a sneaky peek um, to the verses we will look at in two Sundays' time. So next Sunday, it's Holiday Club Sunday. But the one after that, we will finish on verses 13 to 16. Very familiar metaphors for us, salt and light, light and darkness. being distinct and different as we live like our King Jesus. And I think they're all joined together. So we've got the distinctive living, one to nine, the character of God's people. And then we've got the world's response to them, 10 to 12. We've just looked at that. There will be persecution and hardship because we're different. But then just look at how it finishes in verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do you see what's happening? People are coming to worship him. There are new worshippers. They see good deeds and they glorify our Father in heaven. It might be hard, but God is in the business of growing fruit through hardships. You see it in the life and death and resurrection of Christ because it doesn't just end on the Friday. But then the Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. You see it in the experience of the early church. Again, think Acts 7 and Stephen being martyred. The people are scattered. It all looks chaotic. It all looks like it's gone wrong. And then suddenly we see the gospel has gone with the scattered people. And it's bearing fruit and flourishing. The kingdom grows. And I take it God still uses this pattern today in the little things of our lives as we put to death a sinful nature, as we seek to live for him and not for ourselves, but, but in great examples as well. I was reading recently about a man um, called Alfonso Argentino. He was a Sicilian, and a Sicilian who felt he'd been called to China. Um, we're at the end of the 19th century, so 1895. He, he moves from Sicily to London, and he, he undertakes um, extensive training for the mission field. Um, with China Inland Mission. He's interviewed, in the initial interview, they warn him of the dangers of preaching the gospel in China. And his, his reply was this. He said, I'm not afraid even to die for Christ and the gospel. I was led to take this step after having known Christ's promise. Blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus promises persecution, he says, and Argentina expects it. He promises eternal life, and Argento trusts to for that. Anyway, he arrives in China, eyes open to the reality of what it means to be in a difficult place. And yet China got more and more and more unstable. In July of 1900, there was something called the Boxer Rebellion. 
It's a pro-imperialist, anti-foreign, anti-Christian movement there. And the mission station where he was based, in the Henan province, that's where he was serving, he was attacked and he was beaten. He was thrown on a pile of wood and he was burned. But he was rescued. And they beat him again and they left him unconscious, but still he didn't die. And then the locals would taunt him, those in this uprising. They'd say, your God cannot save you. Jesus is dead. He is not in this world. He cannot give you real help. Our God of war is much stronger. He protects us and he has sent the boxers to pull down your house and kill you. Anyway, 17 years later, he dies. But today in the area where he served, from that small little seed, from that life, and the lives of others who suffered with him, there is an army of believers, numbering tens, even hundreds of thousands of people. He knew what it meant to be persecuted, even to the point of death, but it was through that persecution, as he followed in the footsteps of Jesus, as he walked the way of the cross, while so there are people today glorifying our Father in heaven. Now, I don't know what persecution means for you, if anything, whether it's a daily reality of life, if you're here as a Christian and you, you know something of this. I don't know whether, like me, you, you are tempted to quieten down so you avoid persecution, you avoid the hardships. You like the easy life a bit too much. I don't know what it will mean in our lifetimes, whether some of us will, will face prison for holding, unorthodox view, for holding orthodox views on things that the Bible is clear about. I don't know how the holiday club will be received next week, whether there will be a fallout, whether there will be anger as we speak about Jesus. I don't know. But I do know that Jesus is very stark, and he tells us what to expect if we live the kind of character that he calls us to, if he if we live as he lived. And I know as well that this section ends in verse 16 with new worshippers, with people who glorify our Father in heaven when they see the light of his people shining in the darkness. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do confess before you our, our need of you to help us. To help us trust you in this. To help us be prepared and ready even for persecution. Because we live in a world that doesn't love you and is not neutral doesn't want to listen to what you have to say. Help us please to, to be prepared to be different, to be faithful in speaking and living for you. Please work in us as individuals and as a body together these attitudes, these characteristics that we've been reading about over the summer. Please work them in us so that people notice and that there is that sandpaper moment, guard us from simply being quiet. 
And Lord, we long, we long that as we shine, others may see your work in us and so come to worship you for themselves. And we thank you for Christ. Thank you for his example. Thank you that we follow in his footsteps. Thank you that because he was persecuted, because even of his death, so we have life. Guard us, please, Heavenly Father, from simply being hearers and not doers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.